Welcome to From Uniforms to Unicorns. This podcast is all about our experience as female corrections officers, our challenges, our triumphs, and our transitions out of the career. Lauren and I have always had a significant bond friends, moms, and business owners that happen to be in prison. Life attempted to separate us, but we always found a way back to each other through huge life milestones, tragedy, and random text messages saying, I thought of you today. We know there's huge curiosity surrounding these topics, and we aren't the only ones that struggle. There are also incredible stories just waiting to be shared, and we want this to be a safe place for us and you to talk about the often unspoken world of corrections. Grab a coffee, head out on a walk, or just take a break. Let me warn you, we have no idea what we're doing. From uniforms to uniforms. From Uniforms to Unicorns is sponsored by Brand 47 Coffee, which was founded by Holly and Alex, both first responders looking to create a sustainable business to pass on to their two sons with Down syndrome, Jax and Nico. Thinking about the future has always been in the forefront of their heads for their boys, creating meaningful employment and independence as adults. The only way to do that was to create it. Brand 47 Coffee Co. provides the most unique and fun-flavored coffee. Seriously, it is so good. Our Mine and Sharon's favorite is the Coco Loco. It's coconut-infused. It is to die for. All of their coffee is small-batched and roasted to order. They are incredible people doing incredible things. Their vision is to keep the world caffeinated, to stay special, and be extra. You can find them at brand47coffee.com. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Lauren. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? Good. good. Nice to see you. I love nice these recording see. days. Me too. They're my fave. Yeah. Uh, and, and today we have someone really exciting. We're so excited. We're so excited. We have Dr. Jody Carrington with us today. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> the crowd is going wild. <laughs> It is. It is. And you know what? I don't think I would do it justice if I introduced you. Introduced you. So I'll let Jody. You tell us who you are. Oh my God. Okay. Right out of the gate, Lauren. Yes. Um, Okay. So Lauren and I, we fell in love at a Tony Robbins uh, talk, didn't we? You introduced yourself to me, which was really sort of cool. And uh, I, I'm a psychologist uh, and I have a private practice in central Alberta and um, I spent two years as a civilian member in the RCMP and I came, uh, I grew up in a small town in, in um, Alberta and decided because of some really awesome relationships with some, with amazing teachers to become a psychologist. And uh, I don't... <sighs> I don't know. I, I never had a huge love of trauma or, um, I just really wanted to be a sports psychologist really. And then, uh, when I worked for a couple of years with the RCMP, I fell in love with, um, it sounds crazy, but like I fell in love with trauma. I fell in love with what happens in organizations when you don't look after your people. Um, you, I just really started to understand that like, if, if those of us serving aren't okay, the people we serve don't stand a chance. And there's a really sort of misunderstanding about that in um, first responding cultures that I knew I wanted to spend the rest of my life trying to figure out. And so when I did my master's and PhD, I did all of that University of Regina so that I could be near Depo, the RCMP training academy, and um, spent a lot of time just learning from cadets and the organization. And then I did my, my PhD all around police marriages. 
And then I did a rotation with kids when I did my residency in Nova Scotia. And, and they said, you know, you have to do this rotation with kids. And I was like, I don't really even fucking like them. And <laughs> I fell in love with tiny humans who taught me even more about trauma than I could have ever just learned in this adult world. And I was actually 10 years on a lack psychiatric inpatient unit for kids in Calgary and um, learned so much about um, behaviorism and, you know, just how, what a mistake we've made for so long in the last two generations, really understanding that, you know, historically actually uh, Adam, um, uh, I was, well, Jean Claire says this in very many beautiful ways too, but it's really this idea of we have outgrown our systems um, faster than we can sort of make up for it in terms of our lack of relationship and connection. So historically, we've all been raised in this place of behaviorism, which is you make a good choice, I reward you. You don't make a good choice, I punish you, which is how the entire justice system is set up. It's how most parenting systems are set up. And it worked really well two generations ago because uh, our houses were smaller. Our jails were smaller. Our uh, educational systems, like our schoolhouses, were smaller. Our detachments were smaller. And we had more opportunities to look at each other face to face. And so when hard things came, trauma came, bad guys were on our in our midst. We had so much more in the tank to walk them home. Mm -hmm. And the more disconnected we become, the less effective behaviorism is because inherent in the success of any behavioral or, you know, switch is that there is a relationship intact and we are less and less inclined to have close relationships today now than we ever have. So I made a whole career talking about that. Yeah, it's the best. That's, that's awesome. It's, it's so good. Like you're, I, I agree with everything you said and you're saying why this work is important to you, right? And as we move forward with the disconnect because of the pandemic, it becomes even more um, important. And so for you through the pandemic, like what has that meant for you? Meaning the disconnect, the connections, the reconnecting. Yeah, I mean, it's amplified the my passion for this work like exponentially, because I think what's really interesting to me about this is, you know, never in the history of the free world that we've been more disconnected than we are right now. And yes. as tired as I am and as tired as everybody else seems to be, like for the first time in our in our history, emotional illness is killing us at, at faster rates than physical illness. And I, despite the fact that we've all sort of navigated our way through this global pandemic, I have very little concerns um, about it in relation to how concerned I am about the mental health pandemic that is absolutely going to sweep this planet. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I, I mean that, you know, with all the love in my heart, but it's really about no one person is going to solve this. No amount of protesting is going to solve this. No single leader or superintendent or chief or uh, prime minister is going to solve this. It really comes back to the reconnection of you and me. Mm -hmm. And how do we not underestimate our power, particularly if we serve in vulnerable with vulnerable uh, people like in prisons or as police officers, the primary job that you're asked in this world of first responding is to navigate somebody help somebody navigate through emotional dysregulation. Mm -hmm. And when you understand that your job, all of our jobs is, you know, we're just here walking each other home. That's a rammed ass quote that I really love. And it hangs over my shoulder. Um, when I read that, so he's a dead guy who wrote a book of the same title and a philosopher and a yogi. And he said, we are all just here walking each other home. And we were never, ever meant to do any of this alone. And so when you choose to enter into a profession where you're serving, 
if you truly understand that your job is to not extricate the emotional dysregulation or the assholery behavior of the people you're serving out of them, it is, is actually to walk them through it. You then turn your passion into a, a career and you're lucky to do it. You're not trying to just survive it. You can leave a 30 year uh, paramedic career or a, you know, a corrections officer career or a police officer's career and be better than you were at the beginning of it. Not just, we're barely hanging on trying not to get to PTSD. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think that's the, the narrative that really needs to change about like, you know, this whole world of first responding is that it's like just something you need to survive. No, 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 no. It's holy work. Mm -hmm. I, uh, Chad Kennedy. Do you know who Chad Kennedy is, Jody? He's, I know uh, that name. Tell me more. He's walking across Canada, C to C for PTSD. Yeah. So, hey, him and I did the global thing the other day. We were on the news. Super cool. Yeah, it was so fun. But we we went out after, and I always love conversations with people about you know mental health and all of these things. And it was so interesting because we are people of service. People who get into these jobs are people of service, and we do really mm-hmm. feel like it's okay. I'll worry about myself later. I'm here. I'm. I'm I want to go out. I want to do the job. I'll worry about myself later. And. And, and you, but you don't worry about yourself later. You stuff it down. You, you know, you think, oh, and I know for me, like, and we had a conversation about a lot of our trauma stems from like feeling helpless in a moment. Um, that's where he's like, this is where my, I feel like my trauma came from. I have the same uh, experience with mine when there was an incident and I was locked in the control post and I couldn't get out. And it was just kind of like, we just want to help. We just want to serve. We just want to. So when you feel like you can't and the organizations are coming at you going, well, we're, we're short staffed. It's COVID. We don't Mm -hmm. have any people. What do you mean you can't come to work? Like, and, and you're, you're struggling so hard to just stuff it down for as long as you can. That's the mechanism that you, the coping mechanism that you use. So I, I was like, I'm going to ask Joni when I talked to her, how do you, how, how, what, at what point do you like, say, I'm going to let the lid off of this without like getting into like a mental health, like a breakdown, a burnout, a, an all out, (laughs) which usually happens, right? The lid well, pops off. Right. Mm-hmm. And you get to the breaking point, which is, okay, so a couple of things have to happen in this situation, right? Like, first of all, you need the skill to be able to put it somewhere. Mm-hmm. And why this is more frequent in the world of, of typical first responder jobs, right? Uh, and so by what I mean by that is like corrections, uh, police, fire, uh, EMS, is a couple of things. Largely, they are continued to be staffed by men or by women who are trying to emulate men. Okay. Masculine, have ma- the masculine. Yeah. hundred yeah. percent. So yeah. that's, that's what, that's who's attracted to that profession. Yeah, absolutely. Emergency yes. room nurses do equally as debilitating and dysregulating jobs, but kill themselves at a much lower rate. Why? Nurture. Because the profession is invested in an emotional language there's nursing stations. You come out of a hard call. I just had to tell this mom or baby didn't make it. I, you know, had to put this guy's leg back on it to do all these kind of things, or I got throat punched by this patient. There's a place to land and a place to put it in. Typically we perpetuate a culture in first responding world. A, we don't have the language to start with. And then B we say, you're good. 
We're good. Yes. Yes. We're good. We're good. We're good. We don't want to be good. And, and the intention is fantastic because here's the most uncomfortable position to be in, in the human body, being emotionally dysregulated, feeling out of control or helpless. And so when you enter into a profession where by virtue of the uniform, you are the one in control. It is very counterproductive to ever allow yourself the moments to be out of control, feel emotionally dysregulated, feel the shit and the pain and the, uh, I should have, I was a failure. Fuck that poor mom. Oh my God. I pushed that guy too hard to the ground. Fuck. Why didn't I tell him? Why did I, you know, Um, and we don't want to talk about that. So you know what we say? We're good. Yeah. He's fine. And there's a massive difference between men and women in terms of how we process language. Okay, so this is very um, uh, divisive in this. So just stick with me for a second. But I, we say this, we're very, we're better now with our boys than we, uh, you know, our girls. We're not. If you go into Toys R Us today, there's a pink section and a blue mm-hmm. section. The penises go to the blue, the vaginas <laughs> go to the pink. What's in the blue section? What's there? Yeah. Yeah. Cars. Guns. I go. Guns. Wrestlers. Yeah. Nerf stuff. You, you. <laughs> What's in the pink section? Yeah. Dollies. Doll babies. Oh, and Pocket. And little, little blankets because I was sometimes we give Barbie a gun, but it's a pink camo one because she can shoot nicely. <laughs> so then what happens is these babies grow into adolescence, you see, and we have the girls, the teenage girls that are so expressive and dramatic and we're exhausted by all the words. Uh, yeah. The boys don't say a fucking thing. And we're like, yeah. see, boys are easier. And then we marry these fuckers and we're like, they won't talk about anything. No shit. And the highest rate of suicide in this country right now are middle-aged men. Why? Because mm-hmm. they have no skill to put it anywhere. And then we're going to gather them all into a profession. Yes. Be like, yes. shoot. I don't know why they struggle. And then we're going to have leaders of that profession be the people who served in that profession who are fucked. And then they get at the helm. You just nailed the whole thing. You I nailed mean, it. What else That's can we it. say? Nothing. Show's done. We're done. Right. And then, and then, let, let me just say this part. Then a female non first responder tries to come in and say, hey, I wonder if we could talk some emotional language. Fuck you. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. You guys do this kind of things. And, and like, this is how we alter, move the needle in this world of first responding, which is holy work. We start to involve spouses, which is a number one thing. We have to reorganize training. This would be my biggest thing is that, like, at the beginning of corrections work, at the beginning of police work, um, we need to do two things that those things talk more about trauma and, and have access to your partners. Mm-hmm. So I need your partners to, um, regardless of whether you know you're you're not married or engaged or anything, when you go through training, then your parents need to be a part of that or your primary caregivers. And if that's not a possibility, that's fine. But then when you get married, part of the passage of being a corrections officer or a um, police officer, or whatever, is that your your partner is then trained as well. 
and not to conduct the work, but to understand the ramifications of the work. Mm -hmm. Because if then your marriage falls apart or things happen at home, you will not do well in this job. So it behooves the industry, the organization to really consider expanding their ability to provide resources to the family. And vice versa, right? Because if, you know, if they're having struggles professionally, that affects at home, right? Like, so if it's, it's, yeah, it's, and that was something else Chad and I said, it's like, I think they're, the organizations are so scared to say, you're going to experience something, something like it's, it's inevitable. And so then they think people won't apply for these jobs, but they mm-hmm. still will. Because if you would have told me that, I would have said, I'm fine. I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. I, got I got it. I got it. I got it. Right. And so the issue mm-hmm. is not if it's going to happen. It's the when. What do we do when it does? Yeah. When totally. It, yeah. And it will. What do we do if it does? And then how do we start to sort of, I think, address situations that like when you serve, okay, so when you serve dysregulated people, typically dysregulated people are overrepresented by those who are marginalized. Mm-hmm. When you can start to talk about why are we serving people who are marginalized, it's because, I mean, historically, we can explain this forever. When we think about colonialism, when we take it back to people who have been marginalized all along, how does that then affect the fact that if you're only serving people who are emotionally dysregulated and marginalized, how do we address racism? Mm -hmm. If 80% of the calls you're coming to are indigenous peoples or people of color, why are we then expecting that we cannot, we, we, we will not have an experience where we'll say, I feel like uh, I, I have trouble with navigating my experiences around always serving people who are marginalized. How can you tell me that, you know, we're good, they're good. We're like, how, like, so let's put that on the table. No, we're mm-hmm. not racist in our organization. Fuck you, it's impossible yeah. not to be. But why are we there when I continue to serve people who beat the shit out of me for the job, you know, because I'm trying to keep them safe, there's going to be ramifications for that. But the question is, why are they there? Why are we in this position in the first place? Mm-hmm. Yes. Let, let's ha- and then I have abilities to say to the corrections officer or the police officer, this isn't about them and it isn't about you. It's about us walking each other home. Mm-hmm. And we've mm-hmm. stepped into a very divisive racist society because of colonialism, if we want to take it back to the grassroots of things. And we're still paying the price for that in this generation. And we will for multiple generations since. And the only reason that we will get better at it is if we name it and tame it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. So true. Yes. And I mean, everybody always will say, well, what, what population is indigenous, right? In, in, the, in the prison system in, in Canada, it's a question I was asked all the time right? and, and there's statistics against it but we also know like the generational trauma and all that like every and I mean this isn't something that I feel like we learned no right like we did women-centered training we knew how to talk to women it's called women and they did some like aboriginal stuff like back in the day but I mean it was like I I, I remember like participating in restorative justice day going I don't even know what this is why, no, why are we all standing in the gym together I'm very yeah. confused and I'm gonna put my back against the wall so no one stabs me while I'm standing here <laughs> right yeah no I'm I'm just learning now right and like I remember the inmates would like draw the so pictures true. and make the sweaters and I'm like why are we all standing here I don't understand yes. but as I as I'm learning it now I'm like wow this is very cool 
Like, yes. very cool. But also we were in the S&M space. It's a very different space that I'm in now, obviously, right? I don't wear a uniform, but uh, which is why I repierced my nose, everybody. Screw that. <laughs> <laughs> they Sharon, made me take it you, out. I'm, I'm revolting. I love it. What do you think, Sharon? I, I love your take on that. No, it's it's true. Like when you you, you hit so many um, things uh, for me personally, but when we started that job um, and we did that women-centered training, which was directing us how to speak to female offenders as victims first, I remember at that time thinking, this is such bullshit. And everybody that came after me that spoke to inmates in a, like in a human way, I'd be like, they're not your friends. Like you have Mm. to, you know, smarten up. They'll stab you in the back because we're in that space of that inmate would call, you know, your names, they'd fight you, they'd say all this stuff. So when they did send us to this training on how to be more sensitive, we all thought it was a joke, right? Right. until and now like we left uh I don't know how ever many years ago it's I feel so differently about that whole experience looking back because as a woman who is colored I just think wow like we had opportunities that were so missed there because we were told like you'd said stuff it down that's what you were hired for have thicker skin inmates are going to call you names and are going to do all this stuff and there's no at that point when we were there there's nothing for the staff and I'm hearing it's better on the one hand now in corrections and I'm hearing it's still bad it's still bad yeah there are no resources Hmm. And I think, can you imagine like, like, okay, so let's say ideally we figured out what that was going to look like. Okay. So you, the three of us were going to say, we're going to become corrections officers. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we had this training to be able to say, okay, we have an opportunity every month. We're going to take 12 shifts a month. Every single one of those opportunities, we will step into very dysregulated, hurt, angry people who have become, who survived multiple generations of abuse, neglect, and trauma. It does not condone the acts that they committed, murder Mm -hmm. or heinous crime or theft or battery or whatever the deal. That is not what we're asking you to do, to condone what Mm -hmm. they've done. What we want to try to do, you, the three of us, is to see each of them as humans before we leave at the end of every shift, okay? So Mm -hmm. at the beginning of every shift, we're going to be like, okay, we got it, you got it, I'm so excited to serve alongside you today. At the end of every shift, you're going to tell me something that you noticed about each of these, each of our inmates. And we're going to figure out how these people are humans too. Okay, let's go. Mm-hmm. Let's go. We got our 12 hours. Let's go do it. Can you imagine how different that would have been? Mm-hmm. So different. Right. And it's like, I, you know, Brene Brown says this, people are hard to hate close up. It doesn't mean that you're condoning it. It doesn't mean that she should have killed her husband. It doesn't mean that she should have, you know, abused her baby or did whatever the deal was like, but I can promise you every single one of them have a story that will bust mm-hmm. your soul. Yes. And it is not your responsibility to fall in love with those stories or, you know, believe those stories or do whatever it is, but it is part of our responsibility to hear it. Yeah. Right. How do we hold space for it? How do we sort of understand it and then have somewhere to put it so it doesn't kill us? So we don't Mm -hmm. go home feeling like this isn't fair. And how do I protect you? And how do I get, you know, whatever. But when there's not, when you don't talk about it, the good, the bad, or the ugly, you just keep them the bad ones and we're the good ones. Then um, it's, that's a, you cope for sure. I mean, it assists you in coping, but it leaves you burnt out. Oh, absolutely. 
I remember sitting in uh, like on the security unit and there was an inmate that wanted to talk to me and her and I had had butted heads previously, but she's like, and I was like, at it right away, I was like, oh fuck, she's going to take me hostage. Brandon, you better make sure that she doesn't take me. Like that was like my thought process. She just wanted to talk to me. Anyways, she got, she got released a couple of years before that, but then came back. And I always used to put my hair in like this. Remember when I used to do my hair like this, Sharon, when I had this like yeah. clip in it. Oh, so yeah, she's yeah. like, when I got out, I used to try and do my hair like you. And I was like, why? Right. Like it was so funny. <laughs> and then we literally like sat there for two hours and she was telling me how she was like sexually assaulted in this building mm-hmm. and they tried to burn it down. And uh, uh, like the story that came out of this girl was like, I, I saw her in a different light. I saw her very differently after that. And she just wanted to talk. And I was like, I don't have time for this shit. Right. But Uh, I was like, no, you know what? I'll just talk to her. I'll just talk to her. We'll see what she wants. I was like, she wants a phone call and I'm going to be the fucking victim. here. (laughs) She wants a phone call and a pizza and I'm going to (laughs) be, but you know what? After that, it was such a different, and I don't want to say relationship because that's not what it was. It was very. It is though, Lauren. And I it think is. so scared to say that. It is. I am yes. scared to so say it. So indoctrinated to believe that we can't are. have relationships. And you're right. The, the idea of boundaries and confidentiality and privilege mm-hmm. and all those things are so critical, which is, I think, why we're so scared in the training of these organizations to be able to give anybody permission to have relationship. True. True. But that's what that was. She just wanted to be seen and you held space mm-hmm. and saw her. Mm-hmm. All we want to do, regardless of race, religion, socioeconomic status gender identity is to be seen seen absolutely. and when you are seen you can give that gift to somebody and still have to lock their cell at mm-hmm. night mm-hmm. i still have to say i'm sorry baby you cannot stay here today or i'm so, like what I, I mean however you need to speak to them i was thinking about not speaking to an inmate but somebody else but it's in that idea of <laughs> how do we you know keep that's those- a boundary that i would have crossed <laughs> <Not for> sure, <laughs> but, but i but I, but I do shit like that. Like, and, and again, I think it's tricky, it but is. I think it's critically important. And then I promise you, she would never shank you. Mm-hmm. Like, and this, is, yes. this is what I say to like Absolutely. our, on our locked unit. Right. I was like, you know, why are you doing this? And why are you doing, because I will tell you, like, there's this beautiful story about this kid in teachers these days, this last book that I wrote. And so there was this woman who teach right. taught right. in Nascochese for 35 years. And she, um, you know, fell in love with these kids and we like gave her whole career. And she said, I remember meeting this boy in kindergarten, you know, chubby little cheeks and, you know, like just, he was the coolest kid and they had this really good relationship. She had him again in grade three. And then she knew that there was significant trauma happening at home and he became less and less, you know, available at school and all these things. And she um, took a job as a teacher doing assessments for kids in juvie. And so her job was just to go there and like do an assessment before they would get, you know, sent somewhere mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. And so she was sitting in there and they brought in this kid in shackles and it was her former student. Mm-hmm. And wow. she said, I was shocked. It was the little chubby guy. And he, they, you know, saw each other and lit up. And she just said to the officer, like, he doesn't need to be in shackles. Like, he's okay. And they're like, nope, he's very dangerous. And she was like, oh, all right. So they went on and talked about how he was doing and what's happening and where he's at. And, and then um, he tested and she said he did so amazingly well. And she said, I was so proud of him. And, you know, we had this conversation. And then at the end, um, you know, he had to leave. And he said, can I just tell you a story, Mrs. S? And she was like, yeah. And she said, do you rem-? he said, do you remember three years ago when the school got broken into and the whole school got destroyed and she was like yeah of course she said I was working there he said did you ever think it was weird that your classroom didn't get touched and she said yeah I did and he said that was me Mm -hmm. I closed the room to your classroom and I said to them if you fucking touched 
this woman's stuff, I'll fucking kill you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she said, I, I had no idea. I didn't do anything special for this kid. I smiled at him in the hallway. I was excited to see him. And she said, I had no idea the impact that I had on him. Mm-hmm. And she said that was the last time he saw him. The last time was at his funeral. Or the next time was at his funeral. Mm-hmm. And she just said, you know, like the drummers, you know, they, they danced as they sent this baby up to the creator. And she just thought like, I wish I could have done more mm-hmm. because all he wanted to do was be seen. And, you know, it's, it's, it's so protective when people are seen because we're, they're hard to hate close up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it is like, how do we have an institution that can kind of say, okay, let's keep us in check with our boundaries. I know your heart's breaking for this guy, but we have to make sure that we, you know, keep him safe, you safe, all those things. But we need a place to be able to say there is a human side to this that matters, that nobody's anticipate, like nobody's goal is to fuck up their kids. Nobody's goal is mm-hmm. to be able to spend three years in prison away from everything that they love to do. Nobody's goal is to be in those situations and you don't get there by circuit, like you don't get there by chance. And here's the thing, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about us, like, cause when we started, Sharon and I wore our gap pants and our, our running shoes. <laughs> yeah. I'm joking. We wore street clothes because they didn't want to separate us. Like they didn't want that division because women offenders are different or whatever. But I actually, you see that there's so much more violence and so many more incidents now, because back then all we had was our mouths and a set of keys to maybe get us in the door, like a pass, mm-hmm. right? Like a, <laughs> a pass, right? Code. So, but there was, yep. there was incidents, but I know now, right. It's, it's the, 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 the things that we go to first as a tool aren't our mouths, right? Because we do yeah. have so many tools on the belt. Yeah. The mouth is not the first thing, whereas we didn't have a fucking choice. If we didn't use our mouth, if we didn't remind them of the time, I t- remember when I took you to that thing and yeah. we sat together and that guy <laughs> thought we were sisters and, and she's like, ah, that's the best story ever, Lauren. I'm like, shut up. It's the worst story ever. But, but that's how I got out of a lot of stuff, right? Yes. Like, remember when, and we, I'm like, remember when you were smoking in the house and I didn't charge you because I didn't feel mm-hmm. like going to court. So I made you do 35 push-ups. She's like, yeah, I remember when you did that. <laughs> Like, oh, and, and so I think about that too, because we've gone, we've left that, right? Because mm-hmm. there is so much violence. So the tool necessarily isn't building that rapport. And I think to your point, Sharon, yes. I think it's really hard to have those conversations when you're in and up to here and you've just been mm-hmm. beat up the shift before and somebody's just called you a cocksucking motherfucker, you mm-hmm. know, ball liquor. And you're like, you know what? <laughs> you. I, you know, and I, then I try to sit with them and say like, Hey guys, we need to be nicer. You know, they're like, fuck you. Right. Yeah. So there's a time and a place, right. Which is really like, how do we then, you know, at, at the beginning of training, how do we then make sure that we are looking after our people well enough so that they can still hear that. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it's understandable when you can't hear it any longer. It makes sense to me why it's not safe Absolutely. to believe that there's anything good. Or to be seen like as a con lover, right? And I remember I used to have a thing and I used to say, you can't, like, you can't use the abuse excuse. Oh, you weren't hugged enough. So now you killed someone. I used to actually say that to people, to inmates, because that is like what I used to feel in there, in that situation. Like, yeah. But were we seen and heard as, as people who work there? I think that that has a lot to do with it too, right? Like it's so systematic 
right? Mm-hmm. Like I remember I called in after I was struggling significantly with like sleep deprivation and alcoholism. And I was taking, you know, pills and booze together just to get my brain to turn off. And I remember I called in and they were like, are you fucking kidding? It's Christmas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, like, I don't want, I don't want to be off for six weeks, but like my doctor said, I have to. And they're like, well, now we're fucked. We were yeah. doing like, every, we, we were ordering seven people a day now. And, and, and I was like, to my husband, I'm like, I gotta go, I gotta go back to work. Like yes. I'm really fucking over a ton of people here by not like, by not being able to sleep. Like I need to get my shit together here. And, uh, and he's like, I get back. you have a yep. doctor's note. You're not like, you're not okay. <laughs> and I was like, I, well, I have to be, I have to be. Okay. Yeah. 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 Isn't that the truth? Right. And I like, and so is that a thing then that the people then would really be worried about you being a con lover or a, mm-hmm. you know, like, okay, you're just like them or like all of those things, right? Like that, that's the internal culture mm-hmm. that is like so tricky that, that prevents so many people from, you know, having empathy. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, what else I think is a really big issue. And you guys tell me this true is like your leadership matters. And who sort of sets that tone and sort of makes it okay Mm -hmm. to be able to then have those conversations about like, oh, fuck, I really worried about that guy. Mm -hmm. Like, I I don't know, man. Like he was, he was so great. Oh no, he's just fucking, he's lying so that he can get a phone call. Maybe, (laughs) maybe, but like, I I don't know. Like, and I had one good boss that I spoke with constantly and I felt like, like I could go in and slam the door and scream my face off and tell her I thought she was wrong about a billion things (laughs) one time on a midnight shift I wrote her this letter she will sometimes send it to me and be like remember when you wrote me this letter you dumb bitch and I'm like oh my god I love you (laughs) I'm like 24 years old and I know fucking everything so I'm about to tell you what a shitty person you are but then we became like such good friends (laughs) yes but it's so funny because yeah I felt like and, and she had left a few times and gone. And I, I, I felt kind of lost in those moments because that leadership thing is really big, right? It mm-hmm. is, but, they, it but is. they were raised in a different generation too, right? They were raised in the, the, the same, and we all like women's prisons didn't exist until 19, what, 1996, 1995. Yeah. Right. So we were all just trying to do the best with what we knew. And we really, took the men's prisons and tried to put them into the women's, but then said, and then will women center train you, whatever the fuck yeah. that is. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know what this is. Uh, and it, it's, it's a damn, it's a damaged, not, it, I don't want to say it's damaged. It's, it's progressive, right? They're still learning all the time. Mm-hmm. I feel like, right. yeah. And we all are. Right. Well, and we just, we've really sort of still been so indoctrinated into this behavioral idea of you're bad and we're good. And this is what we need to do to sort of make you pay the price for your mistakes. Right. And I think there is an ability to um, still treat people humanely in that process. And I don't think we do a very good job of it. And, you know, we profile so much there's the, you know, and we say, you know, we don't, but we do a fuck, like there's no way Mm -hmm. you can't. And, and I think that, you know, sort of, you can't address what you don't acknowledge. And if you're not really willing to acknowledge it as an industry or an organization, your people are fucked. Because I think that that the the leadership becomes so critical in this way, because if I can't keep my staff regulated, my people won't be regulated and it's, or the the inmates won't be later or the, the, you know, the people we're serving won't be regulated. And the thing is, it's never a one-shot deal. I don't get a regulated staff and then we've arrived. Right. I've trained you all. You're good. 
What I need is somebody to continually pick up the pieces after a bad shift, after a hard call, after an inmate has just fucking shanked three people. Then mm-hmm. I like, I talk like I'm basically a prison, like a, <laughs> I'm using big words like shank and shit. You know, I mean? like, you know, you know, it's good. You know it's what good. it's like. Yeah. Oh yeah. And anyway, I, I feel like it's like in those moments, it's like, you need somebody at the helm to just like a parent. Okay. 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 Come back in. Okay. Sharon. Yeah. He's a mm-hmm. fucking dink. I know. I know that was <laughs> not fair. Like how many times I got the shit beat out of me by like some fucking seven-year-old on a locked psychiatric <laughs> inpatient unit, right? Like I'm pregnant. They're kicking, spitting, peeing on me. Like, oh, one kid, you know, like, right. All of those things, right? Like I, in those moments, I know when I'm regulated that this is okay. This is a seven-year-old who's been in 16 foster homes. Like mm-hmm. that's my job. That's why I'm here. But in the moment I'm mad and I'm overwhelmed and I'm like, what the fuck are you guys doing to protect yes. that? Like, fuck, fuck this kid. Like he needs. <laughs> Like, you know, and I need somebody to be able to say, like, I was so lucky to have a few leaders that would be able to say, like, okay, okay, come here, come here, come here. Let's get you a cup of coffee. Let's get you cleaned up. Come on. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Thank mm-hmm. you so much for holding that baby, you know? Oh my God. Like, blah, blah, blah. and like, if you don't have that part of it, then how do I, how do I ever come into work the next day? Mm-hmm. Right. If nobody gives me that place, you can imagine how fucking mad I am at that kid mm-hmm, who mm-hmm. had all right to get, because I said he couldn't have a visit with his dad because he didn't finish his fucking math sheet. And like, what? <laughs> Fuck you. He hadn't seen his dad for five weeks mm-hmm. and he missed his mama mm-hmm. and his brother's dead. And I, because oh. he didn't complete an assignment, took away the, his lifeline. I'd punch me too. Yeah. <laughs> so many so many cool stories right like and and again it's that leadership and i think if if we don't until in the meantime it's podcasts like these it's speaking out about you know how do we create a safe place for female correction officers to have conversations where do we go for police officers who can be reminded every single day like you know i mean i think this is the benefit lauren of hello hero for me was really like being able to have spouses you know me to say to spouses like do you know that they were your hero first Mm -hmm. do you know how many times they've held babies on the side of the road like that's that's who you're married to they have done many and okays and do you know that like he's amazing. And it's so interesting every hello hero I ever do, because at the beginning I see husbands and wives typically, and, and lots of same sex partners, it, it's irrelevant come like this. Yeah. <laughs> and they sit beside each other and they're like, do you want a coffee? Fine. Yeah. Whatever. And at the end of it, my God, I can barely get through usually the last hour because there's heads on shoulders. Aww. They're holding hands. They're like, they're proud of each other again. Mm -hmm. right and and that's the thing we we when we see horrible things we want to protect the people we love the most so instead of you know not continuing to talk to you I'm going to shut down because I I I don't want to give you any piece of what's in my head right now I I share this story quite often I shared it last night we did a a workshop about relationships for first responders and their spouses and I I have to get my husband on a walk and then without the phone without the whatever and then he he like and I don't want the gory details. I just want to know. You, you don't need them. 
I don't need that. Yeah. And I, I don't, I, I actually, I don't want, I don't want them. Like at the beginning, I did a little bit because I was like <laughs> a corrections officer and I was like, oh, I probably know who, I probably know who they dated. Tell me their name. I want to know it all. Right. No, no, I don't care. Um, but yeah, it, I find when I get him on a walk and there's this, it's like, and not, it's not the floodgates. It's just the communication opens up. There's no distractions. And, and we always go home going, huh. That felt really good. Like, mm-hmm. of course, being yeah. out in nature helps, walking helps, and all of those things. But yeah, it it is a it is hard to get a spouse to open up about you know those things that happen. And and lots of times it's organizational too, right? Like, I don't want to tell you what the hell's going on here, or you know who I fought with today about this or whatever, because mm-hmm. um, it's not important to me. But I I I also think it's important to like release it, right? But can yes. I tell you too, like in line with that, like I, I think what's really critical is that it's, I think there's this big misunderstanding about confidentiality and, you know, gory details. So two different things. One, I can't tell you because it's confidential, mm-hmm. whatever. Two, um, I can't, like, I, I don't want to hear it because it's disgusting or I don't want to tell you because it involved a child or whatever the deal is, right? Here's what's interesting about partners is that I don't need to know the logistics. I need to know how you felt. Yeah. And this is a very different question uh, when I'm out for a walk, you know, with, I know, like, you know, for, for example, if my partner had just done a really hard call, I, I know it most of the time mm-hmm. and I can feel it. And so if I can say things like, what was the hardest part about last night? Where did you feel it? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, and if you can get emotional words, they mean more than I had to put an arm back on, or I had to, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, like failure, Shitty. And I'll say, I'll say, tell me more. And he's like, don't you Joni Carrington me? <laughs> I know I need a new line to start to tell people because they're like, fuck you. I know, I know where you got that from. Exactly. And then I said this to my kids the other day. I was like, what's the hardest part? He's like, why do you always ask me that? <laughs> my new so I was like, That's well, because good I wanted, because I want to know the answer. Yeah. What's the, what was the hardest part? Well, probably having to tell those guys that they no longer have a kid. Huh. Mm-hmm. I bet. I bet. Mm-hmm. Their lives changed in that moment and you were at the home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it fucking sucked. And then we can say things like, I'm so glad you were there. You might not have been, but I know they were the luckiest to have you do that for them. Because mm-hmm. somebody has to, and that's kind of like what why this work is so important. And I think that it's like getting there is the issue. And so people always say to me, what do you do if they don't talk? Okay. The, the other thing that you do is you, you, you don't leave to the best of your ability. And I don't mean like follow them around like a puppy, like, <laughs> like this, right. But it's this idea that you want space. Fine. Fuck you. I'll give you space. You're not going to tell me anything anyway, then I'm stopping asking. Right. It is this idea, just like any kid who's having a temper tantrum or anybody who is struggling significantly, I'm going to continue to check just as I would with my kid or my partner you know what I like uh here's a cup of tea or before you go into bed can I get you anything right and then people are like in marital relationships they're like well they never fucking do it for me so I'm not doing it for them that's part of the trickiest part is when we get into this standoff perspective 
which is really then we get so isolated in our own sides of things. And the only way home is to attempt to your very best of your capacity, as long as safety is, you know, um, you know, still maintained in that relationship, because oftentimes in our first responder relationships, we don't talk a lot about enough is how we snap too far. Um, and, and the abusiveness and all of those things that tend to be way more common in first responder relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but that aside, I mean, that's a whole other podcast, but this, it, you know, in particular is how do we understand that the behavior is often protective when I'm shutting down and when I'm disengaging, it's not intended to hurt. And when I start to believe that to be true, it makes it easier to check in again and again and again. And, and, you yes. like I know I know people that uh, I've worked with in in the first responder spouses world too and I'm like a lot of trading right like their love is traded and I mm-hmm. always say like just give it it's it's mm-hmm. free just give it yeah. and I promise you yeah. it will come back there at some yeah. point you yeah. you loved each other you spoke with each other you were excited to see each other and like if it's a constant trade, like, oh, I'll, you know, I'll do this with you if you unload the dishwasher, or I'll do this, right? And I'll talk to you if you talk to me. Uh, that's not what love mm-hmm. is, right? Love is, that is right. not love. So it's, it is a really, because people are like, oh, I never really thought about that. I for sure trade with my spouse, yeah. right? <laughs> right? If you tell me this story, I'll tell you my story. If you do this, I'll do this. And it, it gets to that point because you are so, you've been so um, disconnected or, sloughed off for so long because you're you're not in that loop right so 100 yeah 100 and I think what's really interesting about that right is like in the beginning of any relationship why we fell in love with somebody is because they have the capacity to regulate us whether it's for five minutes or you know five years before we get engaged it's because we were seen by them at one point and I always tell the story about you know if I take you back to my second date with my husband I'm 32 years old I like I don't think it's ever going to happen for me second date I'm enamored by this guy who comes in a pickup truck he's gorgeous we sit down we have this conversation I'm very engaged you know and he comes in and I said how's your day and he said oh I'm exhausted like today was really hard he's a like in in agriculture and he said you know like I think this industry is just fucked like you know nobody will listen and and I said no way I'm like you are so brilliant you've judged cattle all over the world like don't stop they need you and he's like really now fast forward 15 years we have three kids (laughs) on the ground same guy still fits the same fucking jeans has the same pickup truck (laughs) and he comes to the door like last week and says I say how's your day and he said oh I'm exhausted you know I just don't know if I can make a difference in this agriculture world like everybody's just so god they're not and you know what I say oh my god (laughs) you're exhausted I'm you exhausted. Are, you and I just, and you know what? You're so negative. Why don't you just quit? Like, do you speak like this to everybody at work? Because you're probably an asshole. That's why nobody likes you. Right? So here's here's why. Because now, if he's not okay, I'm not okay. Mm-hmm. On the second date, if he actually was an asshole, I was going to dump his ass. Now mm-hmm. I can't because I told Jesus <laughs> I was staying with him forever and I got three kids. So I'm going to fix it. I'm going to be like, did you go for a run? Did you drink your water? Fuck. We need to get back on medication. <laughs> 
trying to regulate them. And the issue is we knew how to do it on the second date. It is this place of, oh, man, tell me more. It feels mm-hmm. exciting. But I don't want him to keep like, no, 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 no. Because if he's not okay, I'm not okay. So we try to fix really quick. Mm-hmm. And part of the answer is how do we just hold space for as long as humanly possible? Is there always a time where we make those suggestions? Yes. But how do we, we lose that idea of acknowledgement sometimes? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, Sharon. I know, I know we all have to wrap it up here, but so Sharon has a question for you before we're done. Yeah. So this season we've been talking about reinventing ourselves. Um, tell us about a time in your life where you've reinvented yourself. Okay. So I would say like the biggest issue for me is how do I define, redefine myself as a speaker and an author. And so I've written two books. I just got to deal with Harper Collins. They have our third, my third book. I know it's crazy. How do you like change your identity from, you know, being somebody who is like, first of all, a student. And I think every major transition in my life has really been so difficult when I went from student to professional, um, you know, a single person to a wife, um, a not a person with no kids to a mother, um, somebody who like is a psychologist to now a, a writer. Um, an author, uh, the CEO of a company. Sometimes I turn around and I'm like, holy fuck, how did we build this company with 15 people? Like people, 15 <laughs> people depend on me. I don't have a fucking clue what I'm doing. And so I think that really it, it's marked by me knowing that I, that all of those transitions are so telling because I feel completely out of my element mm. and it's awesome. It's what I live for. Well, thank you so much, Joni. Um, we uh, what an honor. It. We loved it. It was, so good. it was so good. We were so we excited to have, to have you and yeah. you did not disappoint us. We'll all. have to have you back yes. again yes. and again and again. Yes. Thank awesome. you well, so thank much. You. Thank you for doing this. And uh, I look forward to connecting again real soon. You bet. So okay. Bye. bye, everybody. Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. You can find us on Instagram at From Uniforms to Unicorns, uh, on all podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Speaker, all of those. Also feel free to subscribe. You'll be notified of new episodes that come out and we always love a review. Also feel free to share with anybody you would enjoy. We also want to send a big thank you to Jamie Green for being our podcast editor and to Jeff Bale at Third Hell Music for our soundtrack. Thanks again, everyone. Have a great day, love. Lauren and Sharon.